Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So recently, I was on a road trip with my beloved friend Bernadette, and she mentioned that she had been reading the novels of a Victorian Jewish woman writer and really enjoying them. And my interest was piqued. Uh, Bernie is herself a writer. She's a very smart woman. She's someone I've known for a long time, and I generally trust her taste. She has often introduced me to media that I might not otherwise have found. And so I looked this person up. And then when I looked Amy Levy up, and I have heard scholars say, pronounce her name both Levy and Levy. We'll go with Levy, but uh, just know that there's some question mark there. But when I looked her up and discovered that she was well-known in Britain's literary circles in the Victorian era, including having the admiration of Lord Byron, I was a little wowed. And I was like, how had I missed her? My English major focused a lot on English Victorian literature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet... No Amy Levy. Uh, it turns out a lot of people missed her, and for a very long time. And the exact why is a little bit difficult to pin down. Uh, I think part of it is that her life was very short, and it ended tragically, and some of her work was controversial. And she kind of has an intersectionality that I think a lot of people have had trouble wrapping their brains around. But she was recognized as an extraordinary talent, specifically of the 1880s. So we're going to talk about her today. And as a heads up, we need to let you know there is a brief discussion of suicide late in this episode. Amy Levy was born on November 10th, 1861, in the Lambeth section of London to Lewis Levy and Isabel Levin Levy. Lewis Levy was a stockbroker, and the Levies were Jewish, but they seem to have been fairly casual in their religion. Their Gentile nanny sometimes took the children with her to Christian church services, the family didn't seem to rigorously observe religious dietary laws, and some members of the family also celebrated Christmas. But there's evidence that the family attended synagogue and that the children may have had Hebrew lessons. Amy was the second child after a sister named Katie, who she was very close to. Louis and Isabel had five more children after Amy. They were Alfred, Willie, Ned, Ella, and Donald. And from a young age, literature was a deep love of Amy's, and that was one that she and her sister Katie shared. And these two sisters, perhaps with contributions from their other siblings, wrote and produced their own homemade and handwritten literary magazine for a number of years called the Poplar Club Journal. And some of the works and the surviving examples of the journal were signed by the authors, but many were not. So the, for the most part, it's a little unclear which of the Levy children wrote which pieces, uh, which included poems, plays, short stories, and even some art and illustration. And it seems like, at least in some cases, Amy Levy wrote, even at this young age, in multiple voices under multiple noms de plume. It contains also brief critiques of the included works, and one issue featured a notice that if a member of the club did not contribute, they would be fined. Uh, so <laughs> I find all of this absolutely delightful. Uh, over the years, these family magazines continued. They seemed like they may have, have expanded to include the work of friends as well, but they also shifted in tone and quality as the children aged, and the magazine was given different names at different points in time. As a teenager of 15, Amy was enrolled at Brighton High School for Girls, which had its foundations in the women's rights movement. 
Brighton also offered primary school education for boys, and Amy's brothers, Alfred and Willie, attended with her. Amy corresponded with her family regularly during this time because it was a school far from home, and her letters offer a glimpse at a very close family and at her enjoyment of boarding school. In a brief note to her father, she writes, quote, Dear Papa, I have time before tea to write you, a few lines so that you may not think I have forgotten you. I wish you would come down with Mama to see us. It is so very nice here. You would like to see St. Peter's Old Church. It is so curious and antique. But hints of depression also appear, uh, which is something that echoes throughout her life. In one letter during this time, she mentions to her mother, quote, I have quite recovered from the blues, which was horrid of me to mention. But it's in her letters to her sister Katie that Amy is really unrestrained, and she shares her innermost thoughts with her sister. One aspect of these letters between sisters is what appears to be Amy Levy's casual mention of her romantic feelings for women. She mentions in particular the school's headmistress, Miss Creek, and refers to herself as the woman's, quote, wormy adorer, saying that she, quote, bagged a divine passion inspiring, whenever I think of it, embrace today at the sanctum door. She continues this discussion of her crush, writing, quote, I am more in love with her than ever. Isn't it grim? I don't believe it will go for ages, and I can never care for anyone or anything else while it lasts. I make such different future pictures to what I used to. You, married, maternal, with a tendency to laugh at the plain high school mistress sister who grinds and lodges with chums and adores without return. These writings and others from her time at Brighton offer an image of a young woman who's really full of wit and opinions and creativity. In some, she writes documents of imagined scenarios, sort of like forgeries, but she's not actually passing them off to anyone, uh, such as letters between two people, neither of which are herself. She also was writing verse at this time, including a poem which was titled Run to Death, and she wrote that when she was only 15. As this title suggests, Run to Death is a grim story, all the more so for having been written by a teenager. It's subtitled A True Incident of Pre-Revolutionary French History and features a hunting party of nobles who discover a surprising prey in the forest. When they look out at what's in the brush, they find that they're gazing, quote, at a something which is crawling with slow step from tree to tree. Is it some shadow, phantom, ghastly? No, a woman and child, swarthy woman with the gypsy written clear upon her face, gazing round her with wide eyes dark and shadow-fringed and wild with the cowed, suspicious glances of a persecuted race. Then they all, with unasked question in each other's faces, peer, for a common thought has struck them, one their lips dare scarcely say, till Lord Gaston cries impatient, why regret the stately deer when such sport as yonder offers? Quick, unleash the dogs, away. The last lines of this poem describe the huntsmen having finished their cruel chase and killed the mother and her child, riding in silent shame back to the manor house, where they then tell the ladies there what a, quote, famous hunt they have had that day without mention of what they'd actually done. This poem wasn't published until three years after it was written when Victoria Magazine picked it up. Amy continued to be a very productive writer as a teenager, when she was 17, she wrote a letter that was published in the Jewish Chronicle titled Jewish Women and Women's Rights. 
in it, themes that would continue into her professional career are apparent as she advocated for professional opportunities for women. Coming up, we're going to talk about the poem that became one of Levy's most famous works, even though it was written when she was still a teenager. But before we get into that, we will pause for a sponsor break. Amy wrote a poem while she was still a student at Brighton, right around the time that Run to Death came out. And this one conveyed the frustration of Victorian women by relaying the story of Socrates' marriage from the perspective of his wife, Xantippe. Her name is also the title of the poem. And in this particular work, which was written as a dramatic monologue, Xantippe reflects on her life from her deathbed and particularly mourns the promise of her youth when she was so enthralled with intellectual pursuits only to have that part of herself unwelcomed in the marriage. She wrote, Yet maidens mark, I would not that ye thought I blame my lord departed, for he meant no evil, so I take it to his wife. T'was only that the high philosopher, pregnant with noble theories and great thoughts, deigned not to stoop to touch so slight a thing as the fine fabric of a woman's brain. So subtle as a passionate woman's soul, I think if he had stooped a little and cared, I might have risen nearer to his height, and not lain shattered, neither fit for use as goodly household vessel, nor for that far finer thing which I had hoped to be. But like Run to Death, Xantippe was not immediately published. The monologue was finished in 1879, not long before the 18-year-old Levy enrolled at Newnham College, a women's college at Cambridge University. This made her the first Jewish woman to attend Newnham and the second Jewish woman to attend Cambridge. It seems, based on some of her writing while she was there, that while she was feeling really elated at what seemed like a career opening up for her— She may not have exactly enjoyed her time at Cambridge, or at least the people who she encountered there. She wrote a verse play during this time titled Reading that's set in sort of a fictionalized Cambridge and features characters named Professor Ego and Bob Bumptious, who seem flummoxed by the women around them. But the men are not the only targets of her satire. She also has characters named Cornelia Connix and Janet Gerrand who ache to be intellectuals. And while everyone gets a dose of Levy's sharp, though comedic critique, it is ultimately men who get the harshest words for their, quote, shallow sentiment and their treatment of women. Her story, Leopold Luniger, A Study, features a main character really grappling with his Jewish identity, anti-Semitism, and self-loathing, and includes this line about his personal revelation. Quote, What stuns Leopold into despair is the recognition that one cannot stop being a Jew, that self-transformation, self-reinvention is impossible. Another piece of writing from this time expresses frustration at being a woman who is also a novelty at the university titled Lolly, a Cambridge Sketch. The story is told through two characters, Lolly, a daughter of a professor, and Rhoda, a student, and together these two represent two very different modes of womanhood. Lolly is a traditional young woman and Rhoda a scholar. Neither of them gets what they want. Lolly wants a marriage and love, but the object of her affection chooses Rhoda. In choosing to marry, Rhoda has to give up her studies and access to intellectual fulfillment. 
Neither of these writings were published, and a lot of her writing during her years at Newnham similarly went unpublished. Much of it was discovered years and years and years later, written in notebooks, probably never intended for review or publication. A lot of her work, both published and unpublished from this time in her life, reflects an artist kind of working through issues of identity and the ways in which choices to go down a certain direction in life mean that other options become unavailable, similar to those themes in Lally, a Cambridge sketch. She sometimes wrote from the point of view of male protagonists, characters which, like Leopold, are usually filled with self-loathing. In 1881, Levy's first book, Xantippe and Other Verse, was published, and so at 19, she was suddenly a well-reviewed poet, lauded for her deft and nimble use of words. She also decided to leave school that year rather than complete her final year at Newnham. The reason for this decision is not known. Biographer Linda Hunt Beckman notes that a surviving fragment of a letter from earlier in the year mentions that Amy's recovering from something. It's not clear what, but it may have been some sort of breakdown or an intense depressive episode. That letter, though, indicates a plan to return to school for the summer term, and that's something that she did in 1881. The women of Newnham College had also just been granted the chance to take the exams that were used to qualify students for a bachelor's degree at Cambridge, While this was a huge step forward, it also meant that attendees of Newnham had to take courses that were prescribed by the school, including ones that Amy was likely not very interested in. Levy wrote a news article about this transition and mentioned specifically the, quote, mathematical classes organized for unhappy people whose souls are yearning for Plato or Mill. But she also released a book of poetry that had been very well received, so it's possible that she felt it was just time for her career as a writer to start in earnest. Yeah, apparently prior to that, they could have kind of an unstructured take-what-you-want approach to their course load. And then when it was like, wait, I have required courses now, hmm, I could see uh, hopping out at that point, but like I said, we don't know. For sure. But after Cambridge, Levy traveled around Europe, visiting Switzerland and Germany in particular several times, maintaining a home base of sorts in London with her parents. She did this for four years after leaving college, but she was still continuing her education in her own way, taking courses or lessons in various cities as opportunities and her interest intersected. She found work teaching German schoolboys English, but that job was really over before it started. Her mother forbade it as improper. She was, however, intent on making her own way financially, and it seems like there may have been a drop in the family's fortunes that magnified that desire. Throughout this time, she wrote to her family regularly, sharing her various experiences with them, often with the same biting wit she used in her satirical writing. She was back home in London for most of 1883, and although she lived with her parents during her time there, she was living an independent life. Most likely because of financial strain, Lewis and Isabel Levy moved from their home at Sussex Place, Regent's Park, to Ulster Place, Regent's Park, and then soon thereafter to a house in Bloomsbury. While this evidenced a downgrade in their lifestyle, it also put their residence in close proximity to the British Museum. 
Even before the family had moved so close to it, Amy was a frequent visitor at the British Museum's reading room and its lunchroom for women. She met a variety of women who were tied to various progressive movements and social reforms, including the daughter of Karl Marx, who was named Eleanor. Although she became friends with these women, it doesn't appear that she was ever drawn into their political efforts. Levy wrote about the reading room in an essay for Atalanta several years after this period of her life. That was in 1889, and it was titled Readers at the British Museum. Levy was also part of an intellectual social club in London, and members of her family sometimes attended the meetings, where all manner of topics were discussed. The Levies sometimes even hosted the group in their own home, so it seems like she had a fairly stable system of friends and family at this point. She continued her impressive writing pace after Zentippi's positive reception. And in 1883, she published Between Two Stools. In 1884, there was Socratics in the Strand. Her melancholic work, A Minor Poet and Other Verse, was also published in 1884. The contents of this book are really morose in tone. A lot of them were written while she was visiting Dresden. And Zentippi is reprinted in this volume. In 1886, Levy lived abroad for the winter, in Florence specifically, where she traveled with one of her closest friends, feminist writer Clementina Black. Black wrote in letters during this time that Amy was, quote, getting well, which suggests she was once again in the midst of a decline in either her mental or physical health or both. While in Florence, Amy worked as a correspondent for the Jewish Chronicle covering Jewish life in Italy. In this position, which is usually discussed as a job that her father had used his connections to get for her, she wrote articles that were largely about Jewish identity from a cultural rather than religious standpoint. And this seems to have been as much an exploration of her own Jewish identity as it was the identity of Italy's Jewish communities. One of the things that she felt tethered her to the Jewish community was a shared sense of humor, something she wrote about in an essay titled Jewish Humor for the Jewish Chronicle. While in Florence, Levy met Vernon Lee, also known as Violet Paget. We have an episode on her that, as of when we're recording this, I'm planning to use as a Saturday classic, but that's also some weeks from now. So if something happens, bum, bum, bum. we'll see. Uh, Paget had started going by the name Vernon Lee as a teen, at that point, using a man's name in her writing in order to be taken more seriously. And there has been some speculation that maybe Lee and Amy Levy were in a relationship. While Vernon Lee resisted the label of lesbian in her life despite relationships with women, the nature of the relationship between Levy and Lee or Paget, uh, which is what Levy called her, is not entirely certain. There was clearly a very deep emotional attachment on Levy's part. She wrote love poems titled To Vernon Lee and New Love, New Life, and she sent them to Paget as well as correspondence that obviously conveys a very intense affection. She addresses all of her letters to my dear Miss Paget and calls her, quote, an electric battery to me, suggesting that being with Paget is where her best creative energy comes from. When Levy, after her return to London, wrote that she couldn't make it back to Florence as planned due to circumstances of others, most likely a family matter, as her brother Alfred was ill and passed around this time, Paget sent her a bouquet of flowers, which she then wrote about. She was so touched by it. New Love, New Life is a relatively short poem, so we'll read the whole thing to give a sense of the verse that Amy was sending to Violet Paget. 
One, she who so long has lain stone stiff with folded wings, within my heart again the brown bird wakes and sings. Brown nightingale whose strain is heard by day, by night, she sings of joy and pain, of sorrow and delight. Two, tis true, in other days have I unbarred the door. He knows the walks and ways, love has been here before. Love blessed and love accursed was here in days long past. This time is not the first, but this time is the last. To Vernon Lee is similarly intimate, although its ending stanza suggests that perhaps Levy's feelings were unrequited and that she knew that, or that she hoped that Paget would reassure her of some sort of reciprocation, writing, quote, A snowy blackthorn flowered beyond my reach. You broke a branch and gave it to me there. I found for you a scarlet blossom rare. Thereby ran on of art and life our speech, and of the gifts the gods had given each. Hope unto you and unto me despair. Regardless of whether Vernon Lee and Amy Levy were romantically connected, their friendship was pivotal to Levy because she in turn became acquainted with a new group of creative intellectuals, although there were some that she had known before becoming friends with Violet Paget. And perhaps because of this new social set, the mid to late 1880s were incredibly prolific for Levy. She wrote a lot. She wrote essays like Women in Club Life and The Poetry of Christina Rossetti and short stories including At Prado and The Recent Telepathic Occurrence at the British Museum. That last title served as a way to critique the many men who frequented the British Museum reading room and were openly hostile about women being there and that a male character is so engrossed in his work that he fails to witness an astonishing appearance of a specter near the card catalog, which is just right there in plain view. <laughs> I sort of love that whole setup so much. Um, up to this point, Amy Levy had not published any novels, although she had worked on at least one that she eventually abandoned. But her work as a novelist was significant and ultimately difficult in a variety of ways, and we're going to talk about that after we hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. Levy's poem Xantippe remains probably her most well-known work. Two novels written during this period of her life largely define her legacy. The first was titled Romance of a Shop, and it is about women choosing unexpected life paths. Specifically, it tells the story of four sisters whose father dies, and the story opens just after the father, Mr. Lorimer, has passed, and the four sisters, Fanny, Gertrude, Lucy, and Phyllis, are figuring out how they will survive as they have been left with nothing. The sisters decide to open a photography studio as a means to take care of themselves financially, and the plot involves a number of steps along the path to success for them, including taking post-mortem photographs and photographing works of art. But the story is really about the lives of the women involved, the choices they make, and their relationships with the men that they love. This was well-reviewed, and it established Levy as a novelist. After the publication of Romance of a Shop, Levy visited Florence once again. And she wrote during this time about a personal melancholy, a heartache over a breakup, which is uh, considered to have likely been the writer Dorothy Blomfield, who was another member of Vernon Lee's circle. 
In January 1889, Levy's novel Reuben Sachs was published. This book quickly became a problem in its reception. The plot revolves around the titular character. That's a lawyer who experienced a nervous collapse, went away to recuperate, and then returns to London as the book opens. Although he falls in love with his cousin Judith, he ultimately rejects her in favor of a more lucrative match. Judith makes a socially smart match after losing Reuben, and the novel examines themes of love and expectation, of Jewish families working to fit into English society, and of a woman's place and her barriers to fulfillment. Jewish critics really felt that Levy's work of prose was a harsh criticism of Jewish life and that it was riddled with stereotypes. Gentile readers seemed to feel that it validated every negative stereotype about Jews and saw it as a sort of expose from within the community. And others seemed to just wonder why Amy Levy was so unkind to the Jewish community. A review in The Guardian from January 21st, 1889 questioned whether Levy's characterization of Jewish culture wasn't too harsh, opening with, quote, Jewish writers cannot be charged with blind partiality to their race. We have lately had some very pungent description of Jewish foibles. And here is another picture which Gentiles may be permitted to hope is too cruel for truthfulness, too highly colored to be just. After all, many of the failings which Miss Levy attributes to her people are common to a rich and vulgar middle class who have a certain jealousy of the class above them because they admire it and despair of reaching it. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of one of those, everybody's kind of a jerk in some way. It's not, this shouldn't be about Jewish people. Um Another review that was in the Morning Post read, quote, There are few things more disappointing than to feel, as with the smallest critical faculty one must, that the author of Reuben Sachs has just missed producing a really clever work. Miss Levy breaks comparatively new ground in this book, the personages of which are almost, without exception, taken from the Jewish community in London, which, by the way, can scarcely be flattered by the rather too somber glasses through which she elects to view it. Levy's novel was a response to George Eliot's 1876 novel, Daniel Deronda, which she felt had romanticized Jews in a deeply unrealistic way. So she had set out to write a novel which showed that Jews, like all other humans, are complex with both strong and weak points of character. But few readers, at least initially, received it that way. And many Jewish publications were frank in their assessment that regardless of what she intended, her work had the potential to be damaging to their culture within the larger field of London. When Reuben Sachs came out, Levy was in Paris. She soon returned to her parents' home in London a few days after the first bad reviews came out. And it may seem as though she was hiding out, but while she may have sought some comfort in the family home, she was also working on another novel titled Miss Meredith, which she completed in just six weeks. Miss Meredith was not so ambitious as Reuben Sachs, and it was written to appeal to a wider audience. It tells the story of a young English woman named Elsie Meredith who moves to Italy for a governess job. And there is a fairly predictable romance plot with the family's adult son. Levy had a lot of social engagements in 1889. She visited with her siblings and their children regularly, and she met up with Vernon Lee. Reuben Sachs was controversial initially, but it also made her famous, and she made a lot of new high-profile friends. The short story Cohen of Trinity came out in May of 1889. 
And it kind of reads as a reflection of the turmoil in Levy's own professional life with the fallout from Reuben Sachs. It is told from the point of view of a Gentile narrator describing the character Cohen in very stereotypical and anti-Semitic terms. In this exaggerated lens, Levy offers an insight into the impossibility of representing Jewish life and culture. Here, the narrator is doing what she was accused of doing in Reuben Sachs, and the contrast is obvious. She also includes the character of Leopold Linegar from her early work as an example of an anglicized Jew who finds Cohen as alien as the Gentile narrator does. Like Levy, Cohen in this story has written a book that made him famous, but that is deeply misunderstood. Levy also assembled another book of poetry in 1889 that was A London Plane Tree and Other Verse. It was dedicated to her friend Clementina Black, Three of the poems were definitely written in April and May of that year, as reflected in her calendar, but it's unclear when she wrote the other poems. These works reflect a writer who feels somewhat lost, perhaps, and definitely exhausted. The poem End of Day ends with the lines, Oh, sweeter far than strain and stress is the slow, creeping weariness, and better far than thought I find the drowsy blankness of the mind. More than all joys of soul or sense is this divine indifference, where grief a shadow grows to be and peace a possibility. On September 10th, 1889, Levy died by suicide. Her cause of death was recorded as asphyxia from the inhalation of carbonic oxide gas from the burning of charcoal. She had seen her sister Katie and Katie's family just a few days before her death, and then had spent the next several days alone before ending her life. Her body was cremated and interred at Balls Pond Cemetery. A London plane tree and other verse, although it was completed, had not yet been published when she died. It was released shortly after that. It's sometimes tempting to point to the negative reviews of Reuben Sachs as the catalyst for this tragedy, but really, like anyone, Levy was dealing with a lot more than that. She had struggled with her personal life, harboring a belief that she was unattractive and couldn't find a lasting, fulfilling relationship. She also had hearing loss, and that had progressed, and of course, she had depression throughout her life. That's come up several times during the episode. Yeah. One of the most telling pieces of writing about Amy Levy from her contemporaries is a sort of memorial obituary penned by Oscar Wilde for Women's World Volume 3, which Wilde edited and which Amy had written for. He wrote very honestly of her work that he felt might be lacking, but also praised her deeply, writing especially glowing words about her fiction. Quote, Miss Levy's two novels, The Romance of a Shop and Reuben Sachs, were both published last year. The first is a bright and clever story full of sparkling touches. The second is a novel that probably no other writer could have produced. Its directness, its uncompromising truth, its depth of feeling, and above all, its absence of any single superfluous word make it in some sort a classic. Like all her best work, it is sad, but the sadness is by no means morbid. The strong undertone of moral earnestness, never preached, gives a stability and force to the vivid portraiture and prevents the satiric touches from degenerating into mere malice. Truly, the book is an achievement. To write thus at six and twenty is given to very few, and from the few thus endowed, their readers may safely hope for yet greater things later on. But later on has not come for the writer of Reuben Sachs, and the world must forego the full fruition of her power. 
The loss is the world's, but perhaps not hers. She was never robust, not often actually ill, but seldom well enough to feel life a joy instead of a burden. And her work was not poured out lightly, but drawn drop by drop from the very depth of her own feeling. We may say of it that it was, in truth, her life's blood. In the weeks following Levy's death, there was speculation about what had led her to take her own life that circulated in the press. A lot of theories were repeated as facts, and finally her friend Clementina Black stepped in to try to set the record straight. She wrote to the Athenaeum, quote, "'Will you spare me a few lines in order to do justice both to the dead and the living? I have lately learnt that various reports, some exaggerated and some wholly untrue, have been made in various papers concerning the late Miss Amy Levy and are being largely copied by the provincial press.' I was a close friend of Miss Levy for many years, and my testimony is that of personal knowledge. It is not true that she never left her father's house otherwise than on visits to friends or holiday journeys, nor that she suffered from failing eyesight, nor from the loss of her sense of humor, nor that she devoted herself to work in the East End. She did suffer for several years from slight deafness and from fits of extreme depression, the result not of unhappy circumstances or of unkind treatment, but as those believe who know her best, her lack of physical robustness and the exhaustion produced by strenuous brain work. Most emphatically, it is not true that her family or her personal friends among the Jewish community treated her coldly on account of the publication of Reuben Sachs and thus indirectly hastened her death. Her parents were justly proud of her, I cannot imagine anything which would have caused more pain and indignation to Miss Levy than the circulation of such reports, and it is in her name that I make this protest against them. After Levy's death, her family, and in particular her sisters, tried to ensure that her work would not be forgotten. As late as 1932, her sister Katie reached out to publisher Macmillan to see if there was any interest in Amy's unpublished work. So for a long time, her work faded from view. But in the late 1990s, her papers were auctioned and became publicly available soon after. And that really started a new wave of interest in her work. I'm so glad that I had this random conversation with my friend Bernadette, which led to this episode. Yeah, I've got things to talk about on that front in behind the scenes. (laughs) Yes. Um, This one is a little bit of a downer since she was, we didn't mention it specifically, but she was not quite 28 when she died, so very young. Um, And so I thought I would do two pretty light listener mails that are very, to me, uh, funny and sweet. Uh, One is from our listener, Mickey, and it is from our episode about the exorcism case, which inspired The Exorcist. And he said, let me start out by saying, love your show. I wanted to share my first experience with the movie The Exorcist. At the time the movie came out, I was nine years old. My parents wanted to go to a drive-in movie double feature to see The Exorcist and could not find a babysitter, so they took me along. They let me watch the first feature, The Abominable Dr. Phoebes, but did not want me to see The Exorcist, so they made me lay down in the back seat. I can tell you from personal experience that the sound of The Exorcist is absolutely terrifying. Thank you for such an entertaining and informative podcast, Mickey. Um, I believe it because that movie, I said in the episode, some of the best sound design ever, and it is terrifying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, but it will stick with Mickey forever, I'm sure. Our other email 
um, is from our listener, Steve, and writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I really enjoy your show, and it keeps me company on my drive to and from work. I often bring home interesting tidbits from the show to chat about during dinner. One of my favorite websites has daily posts that bring forward eclectic mixes of art, science, and exceptional photography. On November 1st, it posted a video created by someone who took out the Tyrannosaurus Rex from Jurassic Park and replaced it with a large black cat. It made me laugh, and I hope it does the same for you. And he sends the link. I have seen it. My husband and I watched it about 100 times, marveling at how good it was for just a spoofy video and laughing and laughing and laughing because it's really (laughs) quite good. And uh, Steve mentions if you're worried about hyperlinks, don't worry about it. But um, and that he has no affiliation with them, but small joys is what life is all about, and I couldn't agree more. And then the real reason I wanted to read this, he attached a photo of Jackson, our Devon Rex. He is a cuddler who loves to play with paper balls and hair elastics. Keep safe, Steve. I um I love a Devon Rex. I'm not a, a breed obsessive person, but if if I am, that's the breed of cat that I love. <laughs> um. All the Rexies are cute, but there's nothing like a Devon, and they are usually very cuddly and very hilarious. Uh, So thank you uh, both to Mickey and Steve for writing us those fun emails. I am still gazing at this cat and his little broken whiskers, which I adore. Uh, (laughs) If you would like to write to us, you could do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us as Missed in History everywhere on social media. If you would like to subscribe to the show and you haven't done that yet, we've made it super easy. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.